Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. We've already raised enough to pay for 11 months' worth of episodes of this show. We're going to keep the fundraising drive going until we've got a full year covered. We're almost there. Please give if you can afford to. Today, Nate and Ed Legg kick off a new Let It Roll miniseries looking at the 1980s based on Michelangelo Matos' book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s role or something? I haven't quite named this series yet, but I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And I'm joined by Ed Legg as we're going to discuss Michelangelo Matos's book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. Ed, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Glad to be here, Nate, as usual. And this was quite a, quite a year in my life. I was 15 in 1984, so this was probably my peak musical experience, although... I slept on a ton of stuff that Michelangelo covers in this book. Where were you at in your journey, Ed, in 1984? I was I was an actual adult. I was 23, and I was in my second full year of of working as a sports writer in Columbus, Georgia. So, without knowing it and and not being real happy about it, I got the the full brunt of of everything that Michelangelo talks about. I, I was listening to mainstream hit radio. And didn't realize it and started in 1983 when I moved to Columbus. It's the first place I ever heard Prince. I'd heard some Madonna, but I was a, I was, I was that album oriented rock guy. So this was, uh, that kind of took me dragging into it, but I think it had some good, good effect too. Yeah. For me, I, I first noticed that something exciting was going on with radio the summer. Of either 83 or 84, I was spending the summer in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and um, there was a dramatic switch from one year to the next, and all of a sudden I was hearing Prince, I was hearing Madonna, I was hearing um, Bruce Springsteen's new album, Born in the USA, which was quite a big deal at that point, Michael Jackson, uh, Thriller, was all over the radio, and um, so when I went home to the Texas Panhandle, I was still sort of 
my antenna was picking up on this stuff and and the uh we didn't have mtv in borger yet we didn't get mtv until after moscow did we got a mcdonald's after moscow too um but uh we did have usa friday night videos for i think two hours on saturday night um with gilbert gottfried and others and so that was hipping us to a ton of this stuff and so it was it was a big year um Big year for me, although I was reluctant to acknowledge it. Like, I'm not from the 80s. Like, there's a anecdote when Matos, uh, in his introduction, tells a story of riding, I guess, in a cab or an Uber, and Phil Collins is playing, and then the Bengals walk like an Egyptian is playing, and the, and the Uber driver says, you know, I'm from the 80s. And, and Matos says, me too. But I never felt like I was from the 80s, even though I dug this this particular era I spent the 80s pining for the 60s. How about you, Ed? You know what? I was a big 70s. I'm a mid-70s rocker. And so I, you know, what strikes me reading Michelangelo's book is it feels to me, and it's because I moved I moved to Columbus in uh, February of 83. And that's the first time I ever heard Prince. I knew who he was. I'd heard about him from friends of mine who were who had more cred than I had, but they, but I moved to Columbus and I'm all of a sudden here in Dexie's midnight runner and Prince and eventually culture club. And it fe- feels to me like 84 really started in 83 and thriller was released. Wasn't it released in 82? Yeah. Late or, 82. And I mean, and, that's astounding. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really isn't. It, it had such a, a half-life and kept going and going and going for at least well into 85 and 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 Mato says this in the book that he's he's talking about sort of a long 1984 that he starts in yeah. late 82 and he and he goes on through live aid in 85 um picking up those threads and and essentially you know the narrative plot of the book is that there was a massive crash in the record industry in 1979 and that it mm-hmm. took until 1984 for the industry to kind of get back on its feet and that um 84 was the year when radio kind of got young again and opened its playlists up and that gave between that and mtv coming on gave the record industry the shot and the arm it needed and didn't even really know it needed like they weren't looking for a venue to push say the culture club and um all the other you know there was a whole new wave of of british rock that or the 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 new i can't remember what they call the second british invasion i guess is what they called it but culture club in particular um totally took my small hometown just by the throat and it was amazing, like coming home from the summer, coming back to Borker, Texas for, for, I guess, my freshman year or my sophomore year. And people's dads are talking about Boy George and in friendly terms. It was the craziest thing. Like somehow everybody and their mother loved Boy George in 1984. And they got that he was sexually ambiguous, but it wasn't like today when they're primed to view drag as this massive threat. It was just sort of fun and funny. And people liked Boy George. Was that the take in Columbus, Georgia as well? Absolutely. Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, um, 
I worked, I was a sports writer and all but the, the, the two editors, the two managers of that department were guys my age. So guys, early twenties, 21, 22 and 23. And one in particular, um, Tim, who was African-American went to Morehouse. He, um, knew at least one of, um, Martin Luther King's sons at Morehouse in Atlanta, um, total, total culture vulture, hip guy dialed in in Atlanta. Um, he went, when culture club came to Atlanta, he talked his way into their, um, their press conference. And we were all laughing our heads off back at work because he he would never work that hard covering a, a high school football story. <laughs> but when, <laughs> and I'm not afraid to tell him this or play this to him now because I still am in touch with him. But I mean, he would he had friends in L.A. He went to Morehouse and he had some connected friends and he went to, out to L.A. that summer and he was he ran into Mr. T in L.A. and this was the summer of '84. I mean, so. I, I felt like I was dialed in and, and he, I mean, I was not wild about boy, boy George or I wasn't wild about any hit radio that much, but it was so ubiquitous and, and there was no way to get away from it. I spent, I was thinking right before you called, I had a lot of tape. I made a lot of tapes. I made some, some who, like I did some who greatest hits. I did Steely Dan. I did just a lot of my, um, you know, my seventies go-to stuff. But then I was, I would always end up turning the radio on. I drove around a lot. So I'd turn the radio on. Sometimes I was going through Atlanta. So when I went through Atlanta, I turned on the, you know, the album oriented station that I grew up with. And I tell you, I wasn't hearing any, any boy George there. And I would remember it. I was hearing a lot of Don Henley and Springsteen, but I was hearing that on the hit radio too. So there was a lot of, um, you know, cross-pollination going on that I, I wasn't as aware of before I read this book. Yeah, Matos does a great job of really weaving a ton of threads together and, and making the whole year a big narrative. And, and I think that sort of neoclassic rock that you're talking about, like Don Henley had The Boys of Summer. I can't remember what the album yeah. was called. Yeah. Um, but... You know, that along with Springsteen, this wasn't the Eagles. This wasn't an Eagles reunion. This was new stuff from Don Henley with a totally new sound, very synthesizer-based, gated drums. Phil Collins was doing that same stuff. And let's go ahead and hear our first track. This is Asia, Heat of the Moment. And that was Asia's Heat of the Moment. And I, and I picked this song and I wanted to talk about this because this was very much a real thing in the early 80s, all the way through 84, that there were groups like Asia. Asia was a super group of ex-members of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and King Crimson. I can't remember who else. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Steve Howe. <laughs> yeah, I was playing guitar. 
and and as well and asia along with yes which reconstituted itself around trevor rabin um and then zz top and uh genesis i think genesis was probably the definitive classic rock group of the 70s that re refigured themselves brought in modern 80s drum machines and synthesizers and made a whole new sound that i mean i wasn't thrilled about asia at the time um and i kind of liked i mean zz top was irresistible in this period um (laughs) but that i didn't really see what was happening with these classic rock groups and prog rock groups that were suddenly turning into sort of new wave groups. I guess the police was another uh, harbinger of that trend. Like they, they were old prog rock guys who dyed their hair blonde and, and cut it short in 1977 and, you know, got themselves a punky sounding name in the police, but fundamentally they remained a prog rock group. They just switched to sort of reggae influenced and lots of delay pedals and drum machines so even the dinosaurs, basically, is what I'm trying to say, recognize there was something new. And if it wasn't groups like this adding synths, it was groups like Journey um, doing ballads and, and Sticks was another one, doing, doing ballads and kind of going Broadway in a big way. And that um, was a big piece of the 1984 recipe. Did you even notice this stuff as something new or did it just seem like kind of the King Biscuit flower hour never ended. No, it really did. You know, it's hard to say now because I'm suddenly thinking about it through this lens. And part of me, I mean, yeah, ZZ Top had turned into this kind of, you know, clown act is putting it, you know, is a little crude because I think they were really funny and they were so tongue in cheek. But um, but they were they were like these characters. And that's kind of what Prince was like. He was this character, and Michael Jackson was a was all of a sudden. Um, I mean, he was always. A, I actually liked Michael Jackson more before Thriller. And in fact, I would say that I liked the Jacksons. And, and I mean, I grew up watching their cartoon when I was little. And then a lot of his songs, we even played in middle school band. We uh, played Ben, which was uh, was was from a movie about a, a pet rat. Believe it or not, but um, but then everything seems like it got production really big time production value, the, the giant gesture. And, um, and it was, it certainly was different and over the top, but at the time was I smart enough to, to know that's what I was seeing. I don't think, I don't think that I, I noticed it the way I am now, but, um, but it was fun. You know, like we were laughing our heads off at, at ZZ top and, and the, those, motifs and in, in those videos or Prince Prince was pretty I mean Prince looked kind of like a guy in a porn movie you know <laughs> at, the, at the very beginning well he with really did at the very big you know dirty mind I mean all that which I knew about but then the first videos like the re, little red Corvette I mean he he looks just kind of you know look he's 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 got a serious look on his face you know <laughs> he's He's taking this seriously, and it's kind of weird. Everybody's looking kind of weird, whereas Michael Jackson was just this hyper-dancing machine, you know. And um, and then even Bruce, I think even Springsteen, which we can 
I'd, I'd love to hit on that. That is the one act that I saw that year that was from this this big noise. I saw some other ones, but Springsteen was really the one that that affected by what you're talking about. Who I saw. So yes, front, you know, from before and after. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, Springsteen uh, in the late '70s was all about the E Street Band, which was you know recreating the Phil Spector everything but the kitchen sink wall of sound sound you know keyboard saxophone multiple guitars uh, drum and bass the, this big noise and they weren't really hard rock but they were rocking hard if that if that mm-hmm. distinction makes any difference but then all of a sudden yeah. you know in 80 I want to say 82 he puts out Nebraska which is Nebraska. basically Bruce doing demos and yeah acoustic guitar and stuff and that album was not a massive hit it didn't have a big radio single or anything but it really got out there and and i know that my big brothers who weren't into bruce springsteen suddenly got that got the nebraska album and were talking it up like i don't usually like bruce but check this out and i think that the nebraska album was so high quality that it really laid the groundwork for born in the usa to become what it became and part of that though was the drum machines and the synth based sound of born in the usa they completely redid their sound much in the same way as asia or yes or zz top or the police or any of these groups and prince of course is pioneering these sounds um as is phil collins you know so yeah but like yeah i want to circle back around though because because Matos makes this claim that that you know 1984 was this peak year, that um, you know not only was it a rich year for the underground, you had hip hop, you had um, dance music was was bubbling under house, was evolving in Chicago. Larry Levan was still um, playing in the Paradise Garage in New York. It wasn't what we would call garage uh, the dance style garage yet, but it's getting closer to that. Um, techno is evolving in Detroit. You still had a hardcore punk underground, and you still had a lot of new wave bands. That, that And that was a real distinction at this point in time. You had bands like Black Flag or the Bad Brains that were this hardcore punk underground of younger kids, kind of suburbanites, not trying to break through commercially. But then you had a ton of bands like the Paisley Underground in, in LA with bands like the Dream Syndicate and Rain Parade and the Bangles yeah. um, that were trying to break through, coming through uh, you know, this new wave punk split. X is still out there. They're on Slash Records at this point in time uh, trying to get a break, uh, get get that radio single that, that never came through for them. But you know, Jamaica is about to invent dancehall, which is the new synthesized update of reggae. Afropop is 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 getting big, and and one of the most important things is this is 1984 is the first year that cassette sales surpass vinyl, mm-hmm. and that is so unspeakably huge. Like growing up, my entire life up to this point, I mean, music had been about your big brother and his cool. Uh, bachelor pad room filled with vinyl LPs and you know much study of the great album covers and everything and all of a sudden everybody's got jam boxes and cassettes and basically all of a sudden I went from 
a precocious kid in middle school who had vinyl LPs to a square kid in high school who had vinyl LPs when everybody else had cassettes. Did that cassette revolution hit you? Yes, absolutely. And you'll you'll be just thrilled to know that my first copy of Exile on Main Street was a cassette. Awesome. And what I was doing, you know, I, I, I was late to the Walkman, but I did finally get one at the end of 84. And so whenever I traveled, I took, you know, airplane flights, especially I took it with me. And so I started and I'd been I, I when I got a car in 78 to go to college and it's a, an old used Carmen Ghia, I got a cassette player then. So I started listening to cassettes then. So I always kind of had them. And like I said, I taped some and took them with me. And then when I was was out of college and had a, a reliable car, I, I started making my own. They weren't mixes. It was usually just like Neil Young decade and things like that. But um, but I was I was usually it kind of had had something that had a lot to do with um, convenience and or finding something I wanted to take on a trip with me. So I'd I'd buy it a tape or something, but then I'd get a, an album or something else. And if I really liked the album, like I got English beat, I got one of their albums and put it on tape right there at the end of 84 and listened to the hell out of that. Cause I'd just gotten that walk, man. So I was, I was kind of on the cassette, you know, I was in that realm for sure. And that was certainly when I was in a, I was in a band in the late eighties cassette was kind of what we used as our, our calling card we we did a demo we did a single song demo with a cassette and we were giving those out and yeah. that was kind of our you know coin of the realm the dreaded single the cassette single. <laughs> it was i have i have two singles from i kind of went on a stone's bench you know hoping against hope that this was a real return in 89 from Steel Wheels, so I have a Steel couple wheels. like a single. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go ahead and hear our next track. This is a Men at Work, Down Under. All right. Traveling in a fire.com combi On a hippie trail head full of zombies I met a strange lady she made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast And she said Do you come from a land down under A women go and men That was Men at Work Down Under, and they were Australian, of course, but I kind of lumped them in with that second British invasion, which was really kicked off in mid-1982 by the Human League's Don't You Want Me, which um, got played constantly on MTV. Then you had uh, Soft Cell, Tainted Love, Breakthrough, Flock of Seagulls, Come Through, uh, Ran So Far Away, Duran Duran, Broke Through Big Time with Girls on Film, and then their second album, Rio, had multiple hits. Billy Idol uh, totally became a, a, a rock star because of MTV. White Wedding, yeah. 1983, Eyes Without a Face in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just tons of stuff. John White's Missing You, Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love, Spando Ballet, Banana Rama with uh, Cruel Summer and Venus hitting big. So, yeah, this the second British Invasion, 
I guess, you know, you could call it the new romantic movement or the synth pop movement. Um, but it was kind of just anything that was British because they had videos and MTV was desperate for videos and, and American artists weren't making them. And it all of a sudden cracked the American market wide open. You had, you know, suddenly record stores in Wyoming were selling Kajagoogoo in numbers, you oh, know, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> too shy, too shy. <laughs> Oh, hush, hush, eye to eye. And, and, um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was a weird moment. And, and, uh, you know, the would be kind of hard rocker dudes, uh, you know, I remember Billy Squire was big with that set, April Wine. Do you remember April Wine? Um, yeah. They were, they were, uh, chugging along, but all of a sudden they were kind of pushed to the side because of this MTV stuff. And, um, you know, it was it was this this massive sea change at the time. All I was aware of it was it was that it was a pretty good year for music, and I but I wasn't thinking of it in terms of it was this epic year for music, which, you know, Matos has put it in this context. And I think the radio thing is the most important part. And for anybody who wasn't around at the time, it's impossible to convey how dire FM radio was in the late seventies and early eighties. Once they decided that they could only give new wave so much love. And that basically meant the knack, my Sharona, a couple of Blondie songs. And then it was back to, you know, Duke Jupiter, the, which I shouldn't pick on Duke Jupiter, but they were like perennial opening act that was always on the, the King Biscuit flower hour. At least it seemed like that way to me, but just one of these bands that, kept working it and kept working it and kept working it and never broke through. And you just knew they were never going to break through. Well, I don't know. I mean, tell the kids how bad did 80s radio or 70s rock radio suck and what? Well, it, it's uh, it's weird because um, Atlanta had, and that's where I grew up and um, Atlanta had a pop had two rock radio FM radio stations when I was in eighth grade and they had been around a while and they pretty much played everything that was you know was rock but they played soul i mean i i bought um curtis mayfield superfly um in 72 um you know shaft was big i mean it was all mixed in there for a little while well then uh the abrams flagship 96 rock came on and uh toward the end of 74 and all of a sudden rock started getting defined out and the pop station, the, the it was kind of like a real pop FM then, a middle ground. They still played Chicago. They played some Billy Joel. And then the, the Abrams style, Led Zepp, heavy Led Zepp, you know, certainly the, the, the monsters like The Who and The Stones and everything. And Leonard Skinner. Um, and Le- oh, yes. <laughs> Amen, brother. And yeah. of course. And, and the, you know, the thing that I know a lot about is that live album was, I mean, they were like this, they, whether they were or not, they acted like they were the sponsoring station of that live album. And when they got a hold of it, they started playing that Skinner. And I didn't really, I've only listened to the, my copy, I think twice, because I didn't have to, they played it constantly on the Atlanta station. But then I went off to college in 78 and, and you're right. I mean, it, it was definitely a wasteland, and what kind of blows my mind now is, I I found out a lot of, about a lot of new wave, and I I can't figure out how now. 
because you're right, they weren't playing very much of it. And, you know, the college, there were college stations in Atlanta, and the one in, in Athens did was really not a factor at that point before, you know, that scene. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, and you've mentioned so many different genres that, that I had no way of getting to um, just because of the town I lived in and then the fact that I was traveling around. It was, I wasn't stationary long enough to, hear, you know, find some hip people to, to get tuned into this. Yeah, it was really a period where word of mouth um, had a lot more power than you, you can really imagine it having now because there was no internet, no internet. And, right, yeah. There's barely cable television at this point. And so, um, you know, word of mouth was was incredibly powerful at this point. And the, the, when you did mentioned- you get MTV? When did you get MTV? I'm curious. When did you I didn't get finally? MTV. I went to, went off to college to get MTV. Like my hometown oh. did not get MTV until like I think '89, which was two years oh after God. I left. And uh, you know they they literally got MTV after Moscow did. Same with McDonald's. Oh, McDonald's boy. came to town after after um, in, uh, yeah after McDonald after Moscow got got McDonald's. And so yeah, it was it was. Um, a really weird period. And you mentioned Abrams and that's Lee Abrams. And he was a radio consultant and he basically invented the AOR or classic rock format. And this was a format that was deliberately out of time. Like this is a mid seventies format that's pushing stairway to heaven. Led Zeppelin's 1971 album track from Led Zeppelin four. They're pushing Freebird from Leonard Skinner's 1973 debut album. And then their 1977 live album and they just played this stuff forever. They played Aerosmith's Dream On well into the early 80s. And Matos uh, talks to um, you know, some of the radio jocks that were and program directors that were talking about, you know, giving up on, on Dream On in mid-1984 so they could play some of these uh, new hits that, that are suddenly so dominant. And it's it's just interesting the way that commercial culture can get stultified and stagnant. And because you think you imagine in this sort of perfect capitalist world that it would be this constant turnover and they would be constantly looking for new things. But as we can see through through first the exclusion of rhythm and blues and funk from rock radio in the early 70s. Now, there were stations that did play, you know, Stevie Wonder and and Parliament Funkadelic and and Rick James, but it was not the rock stations. And there was this. Correct just brutal whitening of rock radio that happened in the early 70s. And so 84 is kind of the end of that era. When Michael Jackson and and, and MTV, we got to talk about this. MTV comes out racist. They did not yeah. run black artists. They would not run Rick James. Rick James kind of destroyed his career by speaking up about it. They finally do run Michael Jackson supposedly cbs records really put the squeeze on but let's hear take a break and hear from our sponsors when we come back we'll talk about the cd the compact disc and what was going on in the underground in 84 hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price 
And so, yeah, not only is this the year where cassettes outsell vinyl for the first time, this is the first year where CDs, compact discs, are a significant presence. Now, my recollection of record stores in this period would be it would be about half and half vinyl and cassette, and then there would be a small section with CDs that would usually be close to the front where they could keep an eye on the expensive inventory. They they were really paranoid about CDs getting stolen and they put them in these long, they call them long boxes. And it was yep. these cardboard boxes that, that would were thin and they would hold a CD at the top and then just have all this empty cardboard space at the bottom, kind of about the height of a cereal box, but much thinner. Um, yeah, what was your first I, I exposure to CDs? I have a Joe Ely Live at Liberty Lunch long box somewhere. That's that's one of the first CDs I was. Now that's in 1990, so that's that's dating me because I did I held off as long as I could. I remember being in a a uh, audio shop and hearing a CD for the first time, and it was with a, it was in Columbus with a buddy of mine who was a pretty big audio file, and. Um, he just walked out shaking his head. I don't remember. Um, I was. I remember a lot of cassettes and a lot of vinyl until, I mean, probably 85 was when I started noticing them more. And I think I went to a party sometime in 85 and I had a player and that was the first time I'd ever seen one. So, um, so and I mean, I held off for as long as I could, but then eventually did you know, go for it when they were, but they were still expensive. Yeah, and they were. The players they were that cheap. One and a half to two times as much as, as vinyl or cassette, I want to say. And and my first exposure to CDs, I think, was in summer of 83. Uh, one of the guys, my brother was a forest ranger, like I said, so I would spend summers with him in the Lincoln National Forest. So one of the firefighting crew guys had bought a CD player and had gotten this sales pitch at the record store, you know, and, and had somehow been convinced that CDs were indestructible. And so he's taken kitchen yeah. knives and scratching them and marketing them with Sharpies <laughs> and he ruined all his CDs. Like, I, I don't know what the guy did at the record store that, you know, did, did this demo. And then, you know, look, nothing happened. It still plays fine. But this guy would take a Sharpie mark on his CD and then put it in there and it was ruined, you know, like, it, 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 it immediately became the, the the fickle, spoiled, easily ruined, you know, format that we all know. And and I don't know if we have I don't even have emotions about CDs, really. I I, I don't really right. I can't say I love or hate them either way. Um, yeah. But in the 80s, you had a lot of bad CDs come out, like uh, just some atrocious mixes. Like I remember ZZ Top, their back catalog came out in some kind of horrific, like they had added gated drums to everything. Oh God, I've heard those. And didn't they, yeah. somebody blame Bill, did they blame Bill Ham for that? I've I think so. That. Yeah. It's yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's amazingly <laughs> bad versions of, yeah. of the, the classic ZZ top seventies catalog. <laughs> um, you know, and Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimmy Page famously protested against the bad sound quality on the first generation of Led Zeppelin CDs and remixed everything. Uh, and that started the sort of remix boom of the 90s and 2000s that that we saw. But 
yeah, so so you've got new technologies coming in and new audiences. I mean, the the Gen X is coming into its own in this period of time, just beginning to. And um, yeah. people are clearly hungry, hungry for new music. And so, you know, Matos leads. I mean, on the cover, you've got Prince, Madonna and Michael Jackson. And, and you know, yeah. when I interviewed him about this book, that, that, that was the stuff we focused on. But he also acknowledges that there was an immense, immensely rich underground stuff going on that you had. You know, he, his his list is like Acid House, Industrial, Goth, New Wave, Post Punk, Indie Rock, Hip Hop. And then he, he kind of has a complaint that all of those formats are better documented than 80s pop, that the 80s mainstream has very relatively few books written about it, whereas there are scads of books about 80s hip hop. There's scads of books about 80s hardcore and punk. There's scads of books about indie rock, uh, college rock, new wave, goth, industrial, all that stuff. Um, and so it does create this sort of distorted view when we look back because Black Flag and Who's Gonna Do were not that popular in 1984. I can tell you firsthand, R.E.M. wasn't even that popular in 1984. I can remember getting beat up um, over, uh, or we didn't really get beat up, but we did get stuff thrown at us and chased because we were wearing R.E.M. t-shirts and, and what we felt were new wave haircuts. And so, you know, you were in Athens though. What, what was that whole R.E.M. B-52s? Was that still well, exploding it, when you were there? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And it was so weird. Um, 83, I was driving through Atlanta to Athens, and I was working at that point. And um, the first time I heard uh, REM Radio Free Europe, I remember thinking, um, you know, that guy sings. That guy's singing kind of reminds me of how Michael Stipe sounded. And I mean, I hadn't heard REM in two years at that point because I hadn't seen them <laughs> live. I mean, I had moved away, and and you really had to know what was going on. I mean, Athens. You didn't drive into Athens and go through a drive-through and they're, they're handing handing out you know REM um, CDs or or cassettes or anything like that. You you know, I understand. I was part of the, what I would call the underground or new wave movement there until i had to get a job you know start working at the school paper and and didn't have time to go do, to, to pursue it and that's what you really had to do it was it was so important to be to be interactive in it it was it was hard to to kind of be up in the cheap seats so i mean by the time Ari, i knew what rem were up to because i had friends who knew them but like when when uh their EP came out, I got it and was scratching my head just because it didn't sound like what I had originally remembered them sound like. And then my at, at the end of 84, when the second album came out, my girlfriend got it. And I was surprised to see that there was one song from the old days, um, Don't Go Back to Rockville. And I actually was in school and worked at the paper with the person who that's written about. So, so you know, their stuff had iterated quite a bit. You know, they had become refined, and I say that with quotes around it. But but by then, the scene's exploding. I had a good friend from grammar, you know, elementary and high school who became like the Athens scenester. And so I was hearing about things he was doing with, with the guys. With, he hung out with the guys from REM, and they did a lot of things that were kind of like piss takes and stuff like that, which Michael Stipe especially just loved to prank. 
So, <laughs> and and I could tell you more, but uh, you know that'll be the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll we'll dive in into Tarian, but it's it's amazing how threatening that sort of quote unquote college rock was what it was called at the time, but um that would get the jock cheeseheads just as pissed off as black flag or the bad brains which they'd never even heard of like they just they knew something was bad out there it was new wave it was you know and then insert string of of sexist and homophobic slurs following that you know like it the um you know the lines were were still very clearly drawn and metal was huge at this point in time although it was this new kind of metal motley crew all of a sudden is appearing and van halen we suddenly realized van halen van halen has children and you know it was van halen acdc scorpions judas priest iron maiden motley crew um so you had a mix of new wave of british heavy metal with your maiden and, and Def Leppard, of course, was massive. And then, and then, yeah, you know, this LA glam scene with Van Halen and, and Motley Crue, but yeah. still had your classic rock like ACDC, which now ACDC is not seen as heavy metal. But in 1984, ACDC was heavy metal. I just have to absolutely, yeah. ACDC was heavy metal in 1984. Yeah. And, you know, the, the early MTV was showing a ton of Scorpions. Yep. And, um, you know, they didn't show a lot of, there was a lot of hard rock on and the, the summer of 82 is when I got a big dose of, of MTV. Cause I worked somewhere. We had a TV, it was hooked up. And when we weren't working, we'd turn it on MTV cause it was so unusual and it just had a ton. It was totally white though. It's like you said, um, until the change happened you 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 mentioned something you keep reminding me of things that happened like in 79 which is when i i i guess i just tied into to new wave then i started i was in a band in summer of 79 and i was um we were playing pretty much the old classic blues rock stuff um we didn't play anything that was newer than two years old and we were really loud and really bluesy but I started dressing new wave and I was, I was uh, going to a show or going into a bar in downtown Atlanta. And in those days, 18 was a drinking age and I was 18 with a date with a, with a female. And, um, a guy pulls over, this guy didn't even have a Southern accent, starts yelling at me, telling me this isn't Hollywood. And, you know, I'm wearing a jacket. I've got, I'm wearing Converse <laughs> high tops. I'm wearing a jacket. But I mean, I loved it. I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. And there were some really weird way out, um, you know, punk bands in Atlanta. There was a punk scene that was pretty weird. Um, there was a band called The Restraints. Uh, there was a band called Raise the Razor Boys. And they were pretty obtuse. One one guy, um, Chris Woods, who I kind of got to be buddies with because he was an incredibly friendly guy, but he wore Nazi regalia. So you oh. see him somewhere like at the flea market and he's dressed up in a Nazi uniform. But he was yeah. a totally nerdy kind of nice guy. Yeah, and that's he, the, the <laughs> fallout of Susie Sue wearing a swastika yeah. with the sex pistols and, and, and that. Um, yep. 
was still coming around and yeah nazi skinheads are going to be a problem but let's go ahead and hear our next song this is prince little red corvette And that was Prince, Little Red Corvette, a chart single off of his 1999 album, which, of course, preceded the Purple Rain album that's going to be so big in 1984. And real quick, I want to I read something that Matos quotes in the introduction. And this was Quincy Jones' vision for the Celestial Jukebox. And this is something that he yeah. thought was feasible in 1984. He says, he says mm-hmm. it could be possible in five years, and that would have been 1989, for you to have no inventory in your house, no records, no tapes, nothing. If you have access to a satellite, a codebook slash catalog, and a TV set, you could punch up anything you want at any time. And you could really target the music because you don't always want to hear a whole album. So you're programming several hours of music from this vast catalog in the sky. That would be incredible. You'd have access to anything out there that's current and have an intelligent way to catalog it. So Quincy Jones predicted essentially the Internet. Uh, in 1984 is something that could happen via TV and satellites uh, in in the late 80s and early 90s. And so people had to wait 10 years longer for that than Quincy Jones was envisioning it. But the vision of the Celestial Jukebox is already out there. Opinion leaders like Quincy Jones, who, of course, produced Michael Jackson's Thriller album and his Off the Wall album and uh, had a legendary career um, before that work with Frank Sinatra and producing Leslie Gore and and so on and so forth uh you know and quite a jazz arranger in his own right but had you heard were you hearing anything like that that the vision of the celestial jukebox uh i knew you know what i knew about that there were satellite some satellite radio that you could that you could program um but that was that was even you know that was mid 90s so nothing even even close to to that i mean just the idea of a of a cd that you could move around was was pretty fascinating and but but cds just seemed so um i didn't think i'd ever get one i'd ne- ever need to get one because they just seemed so fantastic and like you said i heard the same stuff you heard about how um indestructible they were but then i kept talking to audiophiles who didn't who thought they sounded too thin yeah, so, um, they had a the digital age. Yeah, they they didn't sound warm, which I never I mean, I listened to a lot of loud music. So, um, you know, I turned it up so it didn't I didn't notice that much. You know, you mentioned the bad mixes. I've been listening to the original Who Maximum R&B, which is early 90s. And I'm amazed at how muddy that mix sounds. And I remember, I remember when when um, Joe Smith was at a Lakers game, when they released Sgt. Pepper's, and I wonder how that first mix sounds. I mean, you you just reminded me of that too, because I mean, I remember buying the first, um, and I got a Little Feet live album 
it was missing songs. The first Skinner, uh, first uh, ish, reissue of their live album was missing a couple of songs because they could only get so much on it. Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, I think 70 minutes was the limit. Uh, I remember the the Minutemen, Double Nickels on the Dime, they eliminated all the cover songs. So I ain't talking about love and uh, the Creed <laughs> song they covered and, and, and Dr. Wu, the Steely Dan song they covered. So that, that, that really hurt. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I was aware of this vision yet. I, I don't think I started hearing stuff like this until the mid '90s, where people were talking about, you know, the the great celestial jukebox. But it's interesting that that vision was already there. And then another big um, thing that that Matos talks about is is that he says the later '80s sucked. And this is one, uh, you know, I've already we've already I've already interviewed. Michelangelo about this book, but I hope to have him back when we finish this series because I want to ask him about this. Like the later '80s is the golden age of hip hop, is the explosion of of thrash metal. It's the the explosion of acid house, the explosion of um, you know the first wave of grunge comes out in the late '80s. So is he just talking about what was on the pop radio uh, as as being what sucked? Because yeah, that probably is true that's when hair metal just choked on its own hairballs and it goes from you know motley crew to to suddenly warrant and winger and and you know poison. Mass, yeah and poison yes a, <laughs> a real drop off and i've 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 given those poisons albums a real chance in the past couple of years since we've been doing this metal research and and they're just not good. I, I, I it's remarkably bad. I, um, so many, so many better uh, hair metal bands than Poison, and yet they were the ones uh, that that got so big. But what's your take? Because Mato says when people think of the era's cliches, the playful, fun examples are from early in the '80s. The rigid, formulaic ones are from the second half. Do you see the '80s in that same way? Where where just falls off the I, table in the second half or? I don't I don't because I I a couple of things happened. I moved to a bigger city. I moved to Orlando, which had a I don't I don't think they were AOR. I think they were more of a heavy metal station. And they played, you know, that was where I first heard Rat. And that was where they played early White Snake before the hits. And I just remember a ton of um, yeah, Poison was one, David Lee Roth. A lot of bands played early gigs in Lakeland, Florida, because Lakeland has a civic center that's a normal size arena, but but it's in the middle of nowhere. And I saw David Lee Roth there. I saw um, ZZ Top there. And, you know, and that was that they they had the follow up to Eliminator. Um, and then, got, you know, the one that to me that stands out and just sticks out is Guns N' Roses. And yep. they just became gigantic. And, and it was while I was in a kind of a, I was in a new wave slash um, kind of a talking heads car style band. The last, my last attempt, my late twenties. And that was right when we had a guy that was kind of our roadie and um, he was into Metallica and he was huge into Guns N' Roses. And I was learning a lot about it from him. And, and so, I mean, it was a rich, there were some rich things going on too. I know I've told you this. I got I got on this poison bend, and it was kind of like a joke. I gave uh, I gave a buddy of mine a poison seed uh, cassette <laughs> as a joke, and he gave it back to me. I ended up listening to it, and I kind of liked it. And then they opened for David Lee Roth, 
Then they came through on their own. They played in Orlando like four times in a year. And I saw a couple of them. They, they did a, they did one with Brittany Fox and Lita Ford, which was, that was pretty good. Yeah. Classic you know, lineup. Poison was a, what's that? Classic lineup of eighties. It was, and, but Poison was a kind of a, it was a joke. And they said, you know what? They sounded to me like Kiss. That was what, to yeah. me, Poison was like a cheap kiss, which is, you know, saying something, but it's pretty thin. You know, they were thin, but I kind of was enjoying At that point, I needed something uh, frothy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you know, they sold, they moved units, so I can't, I can't knock it. I was, I was totally baffled at the time. And uh, yeah, when Guns N' Roses hit, I was a freshman in college and um, my metal friends back home were, were, give me the buzz so that they were definitely a buzz band at that point. And then they were just, it seemed like overnight they went from kind of buzzing underground to suddenly they were on MTV every five minutes with sweet child of mine and just got enormously big, but let's go ahead and hear our last song. And this is Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic city from his Nebraska album. In 1982. And that one's Atlantic City from Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska album, 1982. And the last thing I want to throw at you uh, before we wrap this discussion is this anecdote that Matos has about uh, Z90.3 in San Diego, which was a big rock station in San Diego. And one day the, the dude who owns it just announced that he's firing all his consultants and his teenage sons are going to be taking the lead on the programming. And that basically boiled down to his wife driving up to the station with boxes full of 45s and, uh, and telling him, you know, play this every 15 minutes. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much where the, the world was at that point in time. The, the kids were hearing stuff on the radio and reading stuff in Rolling Stone and seeing stuff on MTV that was better than the stuff that the, the AOR radio consultants were pushing and it was just you know one of these revolutions where the the old guard was out and the new guard was in and uh, a whole new year any any final thoughts on 1984 before we wrap it up well you know making georgia which was the home of the allman brothers and the up, up until the early 70s um they actually had a station that played a lot of the hit things it had a canned DJ, and it was the first time I'd ever, ever heard a canned. You could tell it was a syndicated, it was basically a syndicated radio station, Ooh. which did the exact same thing you're describing that the, the family did with the, their kids, 45s. It was just, but it was just a, a, a syndicated. It, it wasn't even trying to make you think you were listening to a making station. So, um, and I remember hearing flash dance on that. I mean, you know, that's that probably that maybe where I first heard Madonna was in Macon, but you know, there was, it was, you know, they were dialed into the, to the charts. 
Yeah. And that's, um, you know, and, and in 84, that was a pretty good thing. I think it, it would, yes, it was in a few more years. You, that's going to turn horrible. You, Go ahead. Sorry. I interrupted you. Did you ever hear the, the, the dance remix for dancing in the dark Springsteen? I, I believe I have. Yes. That was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just thinking of the video of the awkward dancing. Oh, and that was and that was that bad. And I was driving down the road in Columbus listening to it. I I you know it was just like I can't believe he let them do this. And um, you know, and I didn't have that reaction when I heard the same probably the same around the same time material girl my by Madonna, which was a really good pop song that I enjoyed hearing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dance in the Dark was, and we'll talk about that when we get to the to the sure. Born in the USA chapter of the book. But yes, it was kind of a forced effort to get a, a dance hit by Springsteen, and it worked <laughs> after a fashion. After a fashion, yeah. But, <laughs> but that's with the kind Courtney of Cox. yeah, with the young Courtney Cox, and that's that's the stuff we'll be covering next time. We'll be diving in. Uh, to radio programming. I think we'll try to cover two chapters next time, but we might just do one. But so I'm Nate Wilcox, and for Ed Legg, we are discussing Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year. Follow the Literal Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Ken Emerson to talk about the magic of the Brill Building in the early 1960s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.